All right, Saturday night is all right for fighting. We think Sunday morning might be pretty good for that too. And so I want to welcome you to our new series, Training Manual, where we're taking that concept of, of a fight and what's worth fighting for and what it takes to be a man, to be a good dad, to be, to be the great kind of husband, to raise a son to be that kind of person. And so we're going to do that as we look at a number of different fights through the life of one of history's greatest kings. But you may notice what I'm standing on here. This is not just because it's so pretty. It's because we thought it might be kind of fun as we went through this to learn some fighting techniques as well. And so I'm going to invite up to our stage today a man who knows a lot about fighting, a man who knows even about some risk-taking as he's done pararescue and, and these kinds of things. And he also has a passion to help guys be great dads. And so I'd like to invite Ray Hoskins. Come on up. And he's got his son, Mason, with him today. Now, Ray, I'm standing on a wrestling mat because you are a wrestling coach. Tell me, what drew you to that sport? Well, honestly, it was the uniform. <laughs> Which I am thankful we are not wearing today. <laughs> no, I'm actually glad the wrestling coaches aren't like baseball coaches where they have to wear the same uniform as the players. That's good. That's, that's very good. <laughs> All right, so, so you're a wrestling coach. And, and Mason, you and I were just talking a little bit ago, and I, I think I heard you say you were like 35 and 5 this year in wrestling matches. I am lifetime. Yeah, give it up for him. Because you're not going to give it up for me. I'm a lifetime zero and zero in wrestling <laughs> matches. But you guys are going to teach me a technique this morning, right? So, so show me. What, what, what can you show me about wrestling? Well, this wrestling move, the goal behind wrestling is to take a guy from his feet to his back. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to show you a quick move here. It's called a PA. If you want to know why it's called a PA, you've got to stick around and ask me afterwards. You don't have time to get into that. So, uh, Mason, come on up here. We're going to ba basically show you, show, show you how to take Mason to the ground, but I'm going to let him do it on you first, all right? Okay. So let's get in a good wrestling stance first. Let's get in a good wrestling stance. All right, you're going to mirror Mason. All right, we're going to get close. We're going to close the gap, head, forehead to forehead. We're going to line up here. All right, ready, set, go. How did I do? <laughs> all right. All right, it's your turn to dish it back, all right? I think I, think I need a little more help. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now, it's a whole lot harder when the other guy doesn't want you to do it, but we're going to let him have you help, let, let, let you do it, all right? Sounds good. So let's get in a wrestling stance here. Okay. All right, let's close the gap, forehead to forehead. We're going to tie up here. Remember, this hand comes over top here. You're going to look away, pull it across your body, and take him down. Go. Yeah! <laughs> Thanks, man. I, I appreciate you taking it easy on me. <laughs> I believe you that that would probably be a lot easier if you didn't want me to do that, but that, that's good. I feel like an expert now, so anybody who wants to challenge me or Mason <laughs> after the service, you know. He's a natural. <laughs> All right, but, but, but to be honest with you, when he took me down, I feel like I'm completely out of control. When I took him down, I still kind of feel like I'm out of control. I've got to be honest with you. Just, just for me, I'd probably show up to the first practice and then quit. So, so tell me, what was it for you that even as you went through kind of this experience, you learned wrestling, why didn't you quit? Honestly, when I was a kid, I was really uncoordinated. I was the smallest kid in my grade, and I, I could never play any sports because everybody's so much bigger than me. So I was kind of drawn to wrestling because I could compete against guys my own size. Mm -hmm. I was honestly, I was afraid to go out for wrestling, though, in junior high because I was, I was so small and I was claustrophobic. And one of the reasons why I was claustrophobic is because 
when I was a child, some of my only memories of my, of my dad are of abuse. And I remember specifically one time where my father was going to spank me, and he laid me over a bed, and then he turned around backwards and sat down on top of me while he spanked me, squeezed all the air out of me, and then spanked me. And I was, I was so constricted, and I was just, I, I was always been horrified by being mm. held down. Yeah. yeah. And so, about two weeks in, I, I wasn't getting it, and I, went, I came to the coach. I said, Coach, I'm just not getting this. I, I, I'm going to quit. And my coach looked at me, and he, he spoke life into me that day, and he said, Ray, just give me two more weeks. Just give me two more weeks. And I gave him those two more weeks, and it changed my life. Hmm. It, it taught me how to, how to not quit, how to overcome difficulties. It taught me how to not uh, give in when times got tough, even in, even in the military and in, in my faith walk. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, how has that, you know, that kind of, you know, never say die attitude that you put into wrestling, that that, that coach, like a father figure, gave to you, how has that translated just into your passion to be a great dad, not to give up on fathers and to help other people, you know, be good dads? Well, I used to be a, a history teacher. One of my favorite quotes by Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, was that he said about his dad, my dad was the greatest man I ever knew. And I always, when I started having children, I wanted my boys to always respond to and think of me as the greatest man they ever knew. And I didn't have a great example. Uh, again, the only examples I had was a dad who, for 35 years, never even so much as sent me a birthday card. And the only memories I had were abuse. And so I set out to raise children in a way that they didn't have to overcome their childhood. And I've done a pretty good job. I have five boys. This is my this is my oldest here. Uh, he'll be graduate. He actually last week he graduated from uh, from college with an associate's degree. Uh, and this week he'll be graduating from high school, second in his class. Right on, man. Right on. And I hear he's a pretty good wrestler, too. <laughs> he is a pretty good wrestler. Yeah, I'm proud of him. Well, you know, Ray, as we were, as we were talking the other day, and, and you even just mentioned it just now, you know, that your faith, you know, that, that your love for Jesus has been a big part of this thing for you. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit, how has your faith and your relationship with your own dad you know, kind of affected your ability to see God as Father? Honestly, my faith, or my relationship with my own dad was non-existent. And... It got to the point where when I got saved, I had to come up with, I had to be able to let it go. And I got to the point where I just had so much anger towards my dad. And I realized that I couldn't change the past and I couldn't change him. All I could do was change my reaction and feelings towards him. So I forgave him. And then probably about five, five or six years later, I get a phone call that he's dying, a life of bad choices, um, alcoholism, drug addiction, but he's dying, and I didn't want to go and see him, but my, my wife's uncle convinced me that I should go, and uh, I walked into the, into the hospital room, and he, uh, he's lying in the bed, it looks terrible, and he walks, and I walk over to the table, or to the to bed and he takes my hand like this and he just starts shaking my hand weeping and he says I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm 
I'm sorry. And it was an amazing moment in my life because I was able to look at him. I said, Dad, you don't have to apologize to me because I forgave you years ago. But the coolest thing was that in that moment, when he asked for forgiveness, I didn't have to give it right then. So I didn't have to empty my heart of all of the anger and bitterness at that moment. I was able to drink in the, the, the feeling that, that he really was sorry. Hmm. I, didn't have to, I didn't have to express something before I could take it in. I could just take it all in. And that, you know, my relationship with God actually gave me the ability to forgive my dad and then appreciate the forgiveness when he asked for it. Oh, man. Right on. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for teaching me how to wrestle. Mason, <laughs> thank you for being here too, man. It's great to have you guys. Yeah, you know, I was reading an interview with uh, Eric Clapton about how he wrote that song. And he said he had never really been around his dad. And when he wrote that song, it's because he realized that there's a longing in all of us, male, female, 20, 30, 40, 50, no matter what age you are, there's a longing for the affirmation of your father. There's a longing for that I'm proud of you, I love you, you become a man. So he wrote this song really not to talk about how great a job his dad did, but that there was this longing left in him because he didn't have that from his father. But because of his fame, you know, top music and charts, he ended up getting into a life of terrible choices and sort of stuck in perpetual adolescence to the point at which he was addicted and, and controlled by alcohol, and then he had his first child. And that child is what forced him to sort of man up. I've got to take responsibility for the chaos in my life. I've got to step up and become more responsible as a man in order to be the kind of dad I need to be. It was actually he began to see himself as a father because he wanted his son to see him as a man he could look up to. Many of you may do the story that his son fell out of a window at age four. He told the story about getting the phone call and walking up to the scene where everyone was gathered around and he wanted to go and be with his girlfriend to be with his son even though he passed away. He said, I walked by that crowd and I just wasn't brave enough. I just wasn't man enough to step into that kind of grief and that kind of difficulty. And that last song you heard is the expression of him taking his experience with his son and with his dad and trying to put that into words of what it is we all long for. A deeper connection to not only an earthly father, but a heavenly father. Burt Reynolds, I don't know if you remember Burt Reynolds, used to watch old Cannonball Run occasionally on TV. It comes on TBS seemingly every once in a while. Burt Reynolds is interesting because he expresses that experience in his life as well. He didn't have a great relationship with his dad. He said, my dad was the chief of police in town. When he came into a room, he just sucked the air out of it. He said, there's a saying in the South that you don't know you're a man until another man tells you so. When you get into your 30s or 40s, you're grown up, and this man whom you respect and love, and you want to love, you hope, you hope he'll put his arms around you and tell you, you're a man now, you don't have to do all those crazy things you're doing, getting into fist fights and all that to defend your honor. He goes on, next part of the quote, here's what he says. He says, you don't have to prove anything to me. We're longing for a father who would tell us, you don't have to prove anything to me, you're a man, I love you. He said, but my, my dad and I didn't have that relationship. 
We never hugged, never kissed. He never said, I love you. No, we never even cried together. So what happened was later I was desperately looking for someone to do that, to affirm that, to speak that into my life. Someone to say, Bert, you're all grown up now and I approve of you. I love you. You don't have to do those things anymore. But that didn't happen. Look what he says. I was lost inside and for most of my life I couldn't connect. I was incomplete. I didn't know what I needed to know. Now this is certainly not just true of men and boys. This is true of human beings. God designed us for this connection to not just someone who's our paycheck, not just somebody who's a disciplinarian, not just someone who's in the room, aloof. For someone who can teach us and instruct us to become the people we're meant to be. So in this series we're going to look at a book called Fathered by God by John Eldridge. We're going to take some of the concepts from his book and a whole lot of original stuff that I'm going to bring out from the life of David. And we're going to look at five fights we all need to go through to develop and mature. Not just chronologically mature, but to develop mentally mature into the people we're meant to be. And the first stage we're going to begin today is the fight for a father. The fight to understand who we are in our core identity as a child, as a daughter. And whether we had a great father... And, and the transfer to a heavenly father is very easy for us. Oh my goodness. It's, it, if, if, if God is anything like my earthly dad, many of us had great dads who were really good at this stuff. And this is going to be a real easy fight. Others of us, it's going to be more challenge. It's going to be a sense of, I don't even have a model to work with. I'm fighting to overcome resentment or anger or, or stereotypes or just, I don't even know how to articulate what it is that I want. And we're going to look real practically at David's life and how to do that. And here's the great news. Archaeologists have actually discovered scrolls, actual journal entries, songs written by David to describe his turbulent relationship with his father. We found two pieces of these. They pulled them out of caves. And these are actually written by King David, validated by archaeologists, to show his journal entry of how he had to overcome. One of those is what we now know as Psalms 27, He was writing and said, you know, when my father and my mother forsake or forsook me. In other words, he didn't have a great relationship with his parents. And and in, in coming face to face with that, he said, but I transferred my need to a heavenly father who would take care of me. And I said, God, I need you to teach me what I didn't necessarily learn. Teach me how to forgive. Teach me to walk in the smooth path, he says. A new way of relating, a new way of connecting because of my enemies. They found another scroll with another piece of his, his journal entry which says this. God, here's what's going on inside me. Here's this inner chaos in me. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. What a weird thing to call your brothers. Well, I mean, I've called my brother worse, let me tell you. But to call your brothers my mother's children. And actually hidden in here is what many Jewish scholars believe, and you'll see some other hints as we go on today, that there is a lot of turmoil in David's family. So much so that most scholars think, or at least some do, that his, his mom had had an affair. Because his mom had had an affair, he was basically an illegitimate child that felt like a stranger or alien or foreigner to her other children. And because of that, 
he's got a real problem connecting with his earthly father who probably in just seeing him thought of the betrayal, thought of the brokenness, thought of how could this have happened. And so he's not ever really able to connect with his earthly father as we'll see. And part of that is because of whatever was happening that we find written in these journal entries. Here's the great news. If your dad did a great job, he certainly wasn't perfect. And God is the perfection, not the reflection of your earthly father. So if your dad did most of it right, but there was still some like, I just wish my dad could say or could have done this, our heavenly father is the perfection of everything you ever wanted in your earthly father. And if your father really didn't do a great job, and you've got a lot more longing sitting around, he is the perfection of of all of the things you ever wanted and hoped for. And if you can go through this fight, to fight to to work in those blacked out areas in your life, those outages in your life, you will actually be a better father, a better friend, a better worker, because you're working out of a place of security, not insecurity. A place of not feeling lost, like Burt Reynolds said, but feeling connected and knowing who you are. And it doesn't matter chronologically where you are, we all need to go through this journey. So I'm going to give you three rounds for this fight. Round number one is going through the process of unticking your ticked-off father. Now for some of us, we don't have a ticked-off earthly father. Our dads did great. My dad was a marvelous job. In fact, every time he's here, he comes alongside, puts his arm around me. Chad, I am so proud of you. So for me, the words of affirmation from a father, it is not difficult for me. But some of you say, well, no, that wasn't my experience. And so part of round one for you will be unticking your ticked-off earthly father. For others of us, you've more had a religious experience where you feel like, listen, my dad was great, but I don't know about God. God's like the person who's mad at you. Don't get him ticked off. He's aloof. His religion, he's sort of an objective, you know, distant equation somewhere. You've never felt that God could be known, would want to know you. You just don't want to get in trouble with him. And that's where we pick up our story with David. Because Samuel, the representative from God, has been sent by God and says, I want you to go to Bethlehem, where Jesus will one day be born, but that's hundreds of years from now, and I want you to go find David. But I want you to specifically go talk to his dad, Jesse. So he sent him to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He said, Jesse, I want you to gather some folks together. And Jesse's right there in the midst of all those folks in Bethlehem. And he says, I've come to anoint a king. And it's one of your sons. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. Invite people together. And this is going to be the beginning of me choosing and showing what I prioritize. Now, as Samuel's coming, again, he's the representative of God. If God was showing up to your house, what do you feel? We better clean up this place. Let's go find that dusty Bible we never read and throw it out there so it at least looks like we got one. What is your general impression if God was to show up at your house? Would he be glad to see you? Would you be nervous? Look at the elders. The elders are terrified. It says they trembled. Oh no, God's showing up in town. (laughs) Apparently Samuel must have had some harsh words to say at times because they are terrified. They are trembling as the man of God shows up. They've got a ticked off God, they assume, coming their way. And they're like, do you come peaceably? As if they presumed he didn't. And Samuel walks into town to the elders says, Guys, I come peaceably. 
I have come to sacrifice to God to show about forgiveness from Him and sanctify, which is to set yourself apart or get prepared for what's going to happen. I've come to anoint a king from your hometown. The king's coming from Bethlehem? Yeah! But the distance between uh, we're trembling, are you coming peaceably, and understanding that our Heavenly Father brings us peace and forgiveness is it's a fight. It's a journey to sort of rip off some bad labels from, from, from ideas of God. Maybe we picked it from our dad or from religion. It's going to require you to fight to get to the process of understanding who God is and what he wants to, to be in relationship with you. The word peaceably comes from a word shalom. And God brings shalom or wholeness to our chaos in our life. And so part of the journey of understanding who you are and leading our, our, our boys, our men, ourselves into this journey is beginning to move from just dad figures, masculinity is all anger all the time to what does it look like to be challenged, to be encouraged and be affirmed. When I was in college, we had a psychology professor. And as a, as a family counselor, he said for years he had to wrestle with his relationship with his dad because his dad, he thought of as primarily ticked off, aloof and distant. And he didn't really begin to do this work. He'd sort of put it off. Ah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm 30 now. I'm 40. I'm, it's not really affecting me now. I'm 45. I'm 47. And he realized he'd never really done the work of helping untick his ticked off father. So he sat down and he wrote page after page after page of the longings he had his father didn't meet, the anger he had toward his father, his decision to forgive his father, he wrote it all together. The problem is his dad had died about three years earlier. So again, he could have just given up on it, but he decided, no, I, I need to fight to heal what's broken in me. And one day he told us a story of making his way to his dad's cemetery. So he sat down, nobody else in the cemetery that day, next to his dad's tombstone, and he pulled out this manuscript. He said, Dad, I really needed you to tell me you were proud of me, but you never did. And Dad, I longed for you to say I love you. I longed for you to tell me I was doing a great job, but you never did. And Dad, I was angry for a long time. But Dad, I'm going to forgive you because I realize Grandpa was a good man, but he wasn't a perfect man. And you just didn't know how to do it. And I'm going to forgive you for what you did do and what you didn't do. And Dad, I've discovered a Heavenly Father who I'm learning how to receive affirmation and forgiveness and love from. And because of the forgiveness He's given to me, Dad, I want to forgive you. And he said that even in his late 40s, with his dad passed away, fundamentally he had to go through that fight to bring about the kind of healing that he needed in his life. That that process was needed for him. And it's needed for all of us. What does it look like for you to work through that process with your earthly father and heavenly father to understand that? 
Like I said, my dad and I have a great relationship. We should never work together, uh, that's for sure. He, he and I have very different wor working styles. So when we get together, we drive each other crazy. But, and, and probably living a distance from him has probably made our relationship even better over the years, just because when we first got married, we moved 12 hours south, and I think that's one of the things that's allowed what was already a great relationship to remain good. But my dad called me up when I was in my 30s and said, Chad, you want to go to Sturgis with me? If you know what Sturgis is, it's a motorcycle rally. And my dad drives out there, you know, since he's been 16, it's like, you know, between Illinois and, and North Dakota, he drives out on his motorcycle with a group of guys, his gang, as my mom says. He invited me to come with one year, and I took 10 days off, 10 days vacation to go hang out with my dad. He says, hey, do you want to ride your motorcycle from Ohio to here, and then we'll ride together to North Dakota? Dad, dad, your butt destroyed all nerve endings years ago. Mine still has a few. No, I cannot drive for 48 hours on a motorcycle. And he says this, he says, we stop every 100 miles. Yeah, for 15 minutes to get gas. No, my butt will not make it. So I said, I'll trailer it out because I've always wanted a trailer. Once we get there, I'll do the motorcycle. We had a great time together. And while we were there, we came to this two-story bar. And at this two-story bar, it was like, right, who wants to fight? Any guy could come in, didn't even know each other, mostly just using an excuse to sell beer. Guy comes out, I keto, he 160 pounds in the military. Another guy comes out, who wants to fight this guy? And it's just like, you're watching this thing, fight to the death. And not death, but it's fight to this blood, and then it's over. I'm like, like people just come and do this? And he's like, professionals, nice people, nice to meet you, I'm about to punch you in the face. Nice to meet you, I'm about to punch you in the face. It was surreal. And while we're watching this, um, my dad and I just had a great experience. And I said, I want to bring my son uh, to Sturgis when he turns 13. So a couple years later, we brought my son out for his 13th birthday. And my dad and I and, and Javen were there and just had a week hanging out and driving motorcycles. And, and then we, we brought him to the camp that night and we, we, we baptized him in Gatorade. We had all these different guys and each one spoke words of affirmation into him, what it meant to be a man, the start of a process of being 13. And we each dumped, it was cold that day too, we, we dumped different colors of Gatorade over him as a reminder of here's love and peace and courage and joy and what it, be, it means to be a man. And it was, it was us trying to purposely put a process in place, intentionally let our sons, our daughters know, because otherwise time just, it just goes by. So how do we as parents create those opportunities? How do we who didn't have those opportunities make those and receive them spiritually from God? It's all part of this fight for a father. Round two, though, is this. How do we then, if that's true, how do we begin to see ourselves and our kids through this perfect Heavenly Father's eyes? This is not easy. It's almost like a daily struggle, an hourly struggle. How do I see this situation the way God might see this situation? How do I see myself, not based on the messages I picked up from the past, but these new messages I'm getting from, from what I've always thought could be true? How do we do that? Well, Samuel says, well, invite Jesse over and bring his sons. So sure enough, Jesse lines his sons up, and the first one's Eliab. These are just monstrous men, monstrous warriors, one after another, after another, after another. And Samuel shows up, and he sees the first one, the oldest. He's like, Eliab, now that looks like our future king. If I was going to pick out a king, he looks like a king, he walks like a king, he quacks like a king, it's a king. He walks over, this has got to be him. And the Lord says, no. He says, do not see the way man sees. Do not look at his outward appearance. You're seeing as man sees. 
You're prioritizing what the culture prioritizes. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, and nothing wrong with that. But I'm looking at the core character, the inner character, the inner developmental character of the heart. I'm developing a man's heart. And that's not him. And part of that process is learning to see yourself and the world based on what God prioritizes. Because our culture will tell you if you're a woman that you've got to look beautiful all the time. And as you age, it will get harder and harder and harder to find your value if you're always seeing your value through what the culture values. And as a man, if you're more of an athlete, you might say, well, not, I'm only as good as my, my most recent wins. I'm only as good as my most recent quarterly earnings. And you just bring that into your life because you are always your numbers. Or if you're not the stereotypical masculine, you're more the artist. And you say, does God value other types of masculinity? If you only see the way the world sees, you're going to focus on exterior, who you've conquested, who you've beaten. But Samuel's beginning to show that God sees a different way, values the inner you, the inner character, the inner core of who you are, and developing that inner core. And what does it look like to focus on that and mature that and grow that? He gets done, and he says, well, it's not Eliab, well, who next? So they bring up the next guy. Sure enough, oh, it's got to be this one. Yes, it's probably me. No, God says. Next one. No, 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 no. To which Samuel turns to Jesse and says, Are these all your sons? And notice they all had names. Abinadab and Shamnah, all the names. He says, The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Don't you have any other sons? And look what Jesse says. Now remember, Jesse and David do not have a great relationship from David's journals possibly an illegitimate son because of an affair. And look what Jesse says. Samuel says, are all the young men here? He said, there remains yet the youngest. But he's out keeping the sheep. He doesn't even get a name. All the other ones have names in the passage. Jesse doesn't even mention David by name. He's just the youngest. He's just the babysitter for the sheep. You're beginning to see our kids and ourselves through a perfect Heavenly Father's eyes as a process. One of the ways we do that as a church is we have every year an encounter we call real men. We allow dads and their 13-year-olds to go on a weekend retreat together. remember doing this with many dads, many of you here I recognize uh, who are there when I did this with my son. And during that week, weekend, several things, we camp together, we do some exercises together, and then we're asked to pull our sons aside and tell them why we gave them their name. So I remember telling Javen, Javen, your name came from Noah, who begot Jabeth, who begot Javen. Javen was one of the first ones off the ark. And your name means to restart. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have consequences of those mistakes. But your name is a constant reminder that God is the God of restarting. So whenever you make a mistake, restart. That's what your name means. And then we had this, the, guy, the, the boys all have to go through a hike in the middle of the woods. We've got these torches set up. And so every 30 yards or so, one of us pastors or, or men in the church are standing by this torch. And the men come up and they're running in the darkness and they come up to the torch. And we'll make, you know, will you commit to courage? Will you commit to be a protector? Will you commit to integrity? I will. And they run back to the next torch. Just so powerful to see men 
and a church putting a process in place to help men, to help all of us learn how to hear that voice that we're longing for. In fact, we had a just a real challenging circumstance, a family in our church whose dad is in a, in a hospital and in a really dire circumstance. And, and I'd gone down there about 9 p.m. to pray for him. I'd done a wedding, I think, just a couple days before that. And so just a lot going on and, and just a lot of fear. And Drew had gone down the next couple of days. And his dad was there. He wasn't really a churchgoer of the guy who was in the bed and who's still, you know, he hasn't come to yet. And his dad said, you know, I, I'm not really a churchgoer. I'm not really a Bible guy. But I am so glad that my son has been in a Bible study at Horizon, has really begun to learn some of these spiritual truths I didn't give him. It's not for me, not for me. But I've seen the impact in my son's life. He's hearing things in this Bible study thing that I wanted for him but couldn't give him. What does it look like for us to help people go through that process? What is it like for you to begin to see yourself and to speak those words into other people's life? One thing that's been powerful for me, I mentioned a couple weeks ago just the challenges of these last 30 days of all kinds of stuff going on with my wife having back surgery and not being able to move and, and just chaos. And I tell you, the generosity from our church, people bringing us meals, people coming over and mowing lawns for us because of the chaos of autism and my wife had a commission and moving children home from college and it's just been chaos and I have just felt so loved, so encouraged, so appreciated by our church. And I guess what I've loved as a pastor is I'm usually on the giving end of of care and help. It's been so humbling to be on the receiving end of it and it just reminds me what a generous, caring church we have and how what, what most of us are about is not just coming here to learn the Bible, but we want to learn the Bible so that we become something, so that we impact this world around us, that we learn how to be generous. Now, many of you have continued to say, hey, I, I've been given to this, this future expansion project going on because I want this more people to have a place where they can learn how to be generous, how to connect with the Heavenly Father, how to forgive, how to overcome years of brokenness. It's just the generosity of this place is overwhelming. And we've been on the receiving end of that. I want to thank you for that. We've begun to see ourselves through our Heavenly Father's eyes because of the generosity you guys have shown to us. Back to David's story. So what happens? We've got to find the youngest. And that gets to our third round. Our third round is we all need to experience our perfect Father's voice. Not when things get better, but into our chaos and into our painful moments. And that's exactly what happens here. The youngest, huh? Jesse, come here. Pulls Jesse aside. So David's out keeping sheep. Now that could be anywhere from 12 hours away to two or three days journey away. And look what Samuel says to Jesse. Send and bring him, and we're not going to sit down until he arrives. Your knee's getting a little weak. We'll keep standing. And the brothers and the dad stand there for somewhere between 12 hours and 48 hours. Why? Because God wants to teach them something as much as teach David something. And as David arrives, the first thing the text mentions that he was ruddy. He was 
had a redness to his skin, as if to say, huh, he looks a little bit different from his brothers. They're not quite so ruddy-skinned, which seems to again imply that perhaps he had a different father. And I don't fault, by the way, Jesse, for dealing with all the commotion of how to connect with a son that may not be your own. So I'm not trying to be too hard on Jesse. This must have been incredibly hard. But also had to be hard on David, who he didn't do anything wrong, but he knew he wanted and needed a father. David shows up. And God tells Samuel, I want you to anoint David, pour oil over him, which was a sign of God's presence and a sign of being chosen king. And I want you to do it in the midst of his father watching and in the midst of his brothers watching. And in the middle of the chaos of this family dynamics and dysfunction, God wanted to pour and speak words of life and affirmation into David. Even though your dad and you have not had a great relationship, even though your brothers have made fun of you, we'll continue to, even to the Goliath story. I want you to know that this is how I feel. I have seen you when you thought you were alone keeping sheep. I've seen your heart. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your character. I think God would say the same thing to you. If you were never seen for who you are, if you're still longing for that voice, would you let God pour some oil over you? Even now, for your Heavenly Father's voice to speak into your chaos and say, I am proud of you. I'm so glad to be your Father. I have seen your compassion and your kindness. I know who you are when others didn't. I am the perfection of everything you ever wanted and everything you ever needed. And listen to my voice to overcome the voice of the culture and the voice of your past. That's what our Heavenly Father wants to do. Millie's last 30 days and just all the commotion going on. I was going back, my emails had begun to pack, pile up, and I was trying to go back and make sure I didn't miss something. I suddenly remembered that about a month ago, a dad from our church had, had emailed me and said, My son's turning 21. You know him pretty well. You're also his pastor. Would you write a letter of affirmation to him? And in the panic, about a week and a half ago, I went, Oh, when did I get that email? That must have been 45 days ago. Did I miss it? So I scrolled back through my emails and I went, oh, I still got two days before the deadline. So I sort of moved everything to the side. You know, Quinn was in bed, you know, finally at 10 o'clock after jumping back and forth for about two hours and, and Beth was laying on the bed like, I'm feeling from very bad to bad. Well, that's progress, very bad to bad. So we're hoping for below average. That's what we're hoping for in about a month. Yay, below average. So I just, I'm just utterly exhausted. I'm like, this is important. I called his dad. Did I miss it? You didn't miss it. I just, one page, quick. I want you to know how proud I am of you, how much I've enjoyed getting to know you. Gave a couple specific verses I thought spoke to this young man. A lot of men have been through a three-year journey that Doug Daly has led them on the last couple of years, and they've made male plans, guy plans, dad plans. How can I be intentional? And I'm telling you, it's never too late. If you're a dad and you've got a 47-year-old son, there's still some things you might need to say. And you might be the piece of healing for them. And there's something about guys. There's something about men that need other men to call them. My son just turned 18. I've been really, he graduated from college. I told him how proud I was of him. He's also made some mistakes. And so I've been on him about some of those mistakes. He's got ADHD, so trying to 
uh, help him you know, manage things he needs. And so I called him aside the other day. He just did really fought hard for this thing. It really did really well. And I said, David, I want to talk to you for a second. I've been really ragging on you about these couple things, right? Yeah. I said, I got to tell you, I saw what you did this week. I saw how hard you fought for that. I saw how well you did, how well you overcame. I want you to know how proud I am of you. And so being a great dad doesn't mean not challenging, doesn't mean not giving consequences, doesn't not mean giving structure, but it means in the midst of that we're motivated not by your annoying me and your inconvenience me, but I want the best for you. And that's my encouragement for you is to make this the beginning of a journey that you will fight not with your father, but for your father. Fight to understand God's view of you. Because in the middle of a father and, and, and brothers who make fun of him all the time, in the middle of that passage, they say, when I saw David, I saw a mighty man of valor. A man of war. I saw a man who's prudent in speech. I saw a man who's handsome. And, but mostly what struck me is David was the kind of person that God was with him. And the main message of the Bible, if you've never heard it, is not be a better person. That's like the opposite of the main message of the Bible. The main message of the Bible is that God wants you to see yourself the way he sees you. And so what happens? He came and he said that none of us have been a perfect mom, none of us have been a perfect dad, none of us have been a perfect son, none of us have been a perfect daughter. So part of seeing ourselves accurately is admitting that we have weaknesses and we have brokenness and we have a rebellion and we, we have a lot, we're far worse than we think we are. Yet, God came from heaven to earth to die on a cross to pay for everything we have and will do wrong so that he could paint a picture of who we are fully forgiven, fully restored, fully developed. He says, come near me. Come, come, come near. Come near. I'm not mad. Come near. This is who you are fully forgiven because of what I did. This is who you are fully healed, fully restored with no bitterness. Let me show you a picture of how I see you. Now, let's knock off some of the rough edges so you can become what I've already seen you to be in Jesus. And that's why it's called good news. Because you go, well, I'm not that. No, that's, no, no. Yeah, you're not that yet. But because of what Jesus has done, I currently, God says, can see you that way if you accept my gift. And then you can see how you look the way I see you and we can together become that by me giving you the grace you need, the patience you need, the peace you need. Don't you want that? That, that means you've got to fight for your Father's voice, for your Father's vision of yourself. That's what Jesus wants us to become. That's why He came. And then out of what our Heavenly Father shows us to be, we intentionally look for ways to pour that into our kids. We had two of those in the last month. <clears throat> One was every time my son, and I just loved, he would call me at college and want to go jet skiing together or he'd want to go to movies together. And, and so every time he'd leave, I'd say, Hey, Javen, I love you. About third time home, I said, Hey, I don't know if, it's kind of weird, actually, an 18-year-old, I was thinking to myself, am I allowed to say that anymore? I'm like, of course I am. I, I've, I read books about this. It was weird to actually have this almost weird moment of like a hesitation to say it. I'm, I'm going to keep saying it even though it's awkward. And then it became less awkward. <clears throat> he came home one day and we're sitting on the couch. I said, do you realize that every time you're home when you leave, I say I love you and you don't necessarily say it back? I said, that's okay. I, I don't, don't want to make you uncomfortable. But just know I'm going to keep saying it. 
And Javen's like, Dad, honestly, I didn't realize I wasn't saying it. I love you too. So he stepped into the awkwardness to set a pattern. My daughter moved home from college. We moved into her. There wasn't enough going on the last couple of weeks. We moved her into her apartment. And my you know, wife, like I said, is not feeling well. But I said, honey, we have got to go over here and, and be part of this moment. So I helped move everything. And then once that was in place, my wife and I came over to her apartment. We sat down. And we just told stories about our first apartment. We told her how proud we are, were of her. We told her just how her kindness and her dedication, hard work to God, how God is going to use that. It was just such an incredible moment. Moments that could just slip by and you could miss. But what I'm encouraging you to do is be intentional with your kids. And if you never had that, be intentional. How do I get in front of the Bible around other people who can be the voice of the Heavenly Father that I've needed? And when you do that, you're going to find that there's a God who's not the reflection of everything that your parents did wrong, but the perfection of everything you needed them to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being what we need. Thank you for not waiting for us to get our act together to step into our chaos. Father, I ask that this will be the beginning of an incredible journey for all of us, that we will begin to find healing of of years or decades that we will do the work to hear your voice, to become people who act out of a place of security, not insecurity, a place of rest and love, not a place of always trying to prove ourselves. And through that, Father, we ask you take our church and continue to use it. Use it as we bless people who are hurting in hospitals, people getting married, people who are here near and far on mission trips. God, continue to use us to extend your love and your heavenly Father's heart to those people all around us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We see you all next week as we go for our next fight, the fight for work and adventure. See you next week.